Hi there, I'm Rory O'Connor, Professor of Health Psychology and a Mental Health Researcher at the University of Glasgow. And I'm Craig, a filmmaker and content creator at MQ Mental Health Research. And welcome to MQ Open Mind, a podcast that brings together lived experience with scientific research to help us to better understand mental health problems. And we hope to do so in a way that is accessible to all. In this episode, we spoke to mental health activist and author, Dean Stott. After managing with an anxiety disorder for several years, Dean had the idea to start DLC Anxiety, an online community support group for people coping with anxiety. Since its start in 2020, DLC Anxiety has amassed over 1.2 million members, providing helpful tips and advice from anxiety experts. In this conversation, we discuss supporting people with anxiety, the difference between anxiety and anxiety disorder, and the benefits of using social media for your mental health. So welcome to the latest episode of MQ's Open Mind podcast. This afternoon, I'm delighted we've got a, a fantastic guest. We've got Dean Stott, and Dean is founder of DLC Anxiety, which is an online anxiety support community. Welcome to the podcast, Dean. And before you do your welcome back, and also author of of three books, which we'll, we'll be talking about no doubt during our conversation. So welcome. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys asking me to come on and have this conversation. Fantastic. So but maybe just to, to kick us off then, Dean, can you tell us obviously what sort of sparked your interest or where did your interest in mental health come from? Yeah, of course. So I initially uh, did a psychology degree uh, back a long time ago now, back in the day. So I've always had an interest in the mind and the psyche. However, it was in 2017, my father passed away. Um, and like like most people do, I ended up uh, going back to work way before any grief had been processed. And I just randomly started to have panic attacks. Um, and this was the first time I'd experienced panic attacks. And yeah, it took me by surprise and it took me on a two-year journey of, of overcoming the panic disorder. After overcoming it, it became my mission to let other people know they're not alone, they're not isolated, that you can overcome panic, um, panic disorder because when you're in a panic disorder, you think that's it. You think you're isolated, you think you're alone, you think there's never going to be a day where you don't wake up and you don't feel anxious. So I just wanted to spark that into as many people as possible. And I went on a search of trying to find the best platform to, to spread the message. And that's where Instagram came up at the time. Uh, a few lockdowns happened and it was almost a dominoes effect. And now four years later, 1.3 million uh, community members. And yeah, we're definitely getting the message out. I mean, that's, it's incredible. I was looking at your Instagram earlier. So yeah, so you went from zero yes. to over a million in four years. Initially, I was getting my message out. People was resonating, great engagement. People obviously finding hope that someone had been through it. They overcome a panic disorder and they were sharing it. So I definitely had the engagement at the start. But as soon as the lockdowns came in, it was almost like all the celebrities. So we have a lot of celebrities who follow the community over in America. It's almost like they all got the phones back and were dedicated to the mental health space. So they all started sharing a lot of the posts and a lot of the interviews I did on the platform. And then it was like a domino's effect from the from the start of the lockdown. Maybe I was on maybe one, two hundred thousand followers. Then a year later, 
a million and now yeah it just keeps growing which is fantastic yeah this is remarkable remarkable can i just bring you back a second though to, to before we get to or we'll go back to dlc anxiety but in your own challenges with anxiety after your father died so did you get treatment or support or how how did you manage that yeah, no, great question. So, yeah, I started having panic attacks in the workplace. Um, obviously, didn't realize, didn't know it was panic attack, a panic attack at the time. So my first protocol was the doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to the doctor. They ran the the relevant blood tests. Uh, they t- they reassured me it was anxiety, but because I'd never felt this this level of anxiety before, uh, and I obviously had an anxious mind uh, turned on. I thought that it wasn't anxiety. I thought something would be coming back from the blood test that something to be seriously wrong and i remember the blood test came back fine and the doctor prescribed me a library book and at the time i thought they were dismissing me completely i thought they wasn't taking um my situation seriously until i actually went to the library and got this um, book on um, psychoeducation on anxiety and panic And then I really realized when you start to learn the process of anxiety, you start to take away some of that scurry uncertainty, then that really helped me and kickstarted my recovery. So I did that. And the doctor also um, put me in contact with a counselor regarding the grief. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So the grief was dealt with separately to the anxiety. Um, With the anxiety, I did uh, self-help CBT, which I found very helpful. And like I said, it was just a learning process and the psychoeducation around anxiety, which really kickstarted it. And I opened up to a friend in the workplace that I was in at the time who told me that he'd been through an anxiety disorder. And he it was almost like he was telling me, it was almost like he was... Um, walking in my shoes like it, everything he would say back to me it was like a, a breath of fresh air it was like a weight off my shoulder and that that moment with him as well also sparked um this this message of you're not alone you're not isolated and most importantly you're not broken mm-hmm. oh, that's and it's so that period of recovery how long did that take then two years from from where i could say that i was and again another conversation anxiety recovery is not never to feel anxious again it's to continue to do the the, the things that non-anxious you would do yes to, yeah, to yeah. go out and not care if you have a panic attack and guess what the knock-on effect is with that mindset the the, the panic attacks they lessen and then over time yeah they, they just didn't start i wasn't um there was there wasn't frequently occurring mm-hmm. um so that process i would say to get to that point was two years but there was, as you know, with anxiety recovery, there was ups and downs. Yeah. Uh, there was great moments and then there was setbacks, but that was all part of the journey. And so what are you doing at the minute then to maintain your, your mental health then? Or how do you how do you maintain your mental health now? I assume part of it is doing what you say in your books, but we'll come yeah. back to that. But but in terms of your everyday life, what do you what do you do? So anxiety and stress highly linked. So I realize that when I go through maybe one, one to th- uh, between one and three months of high levels of stress, that will eventually pour out into excessive anxiety. So now I'm really mindful um, to to keep that stress level down. The external stresses, the ones that I that I have control of, to really keep them down. So I do that by meditation, mindfulness. And exercise, exercise is really, really important for me. And that really, really helps um, lower the stress level, which then manages uh, the anxiety levels. 
obviously good advice for everybody or anybody, I suppose, for to maintain your mental health. So then, so you started, so um, so four years ago then you started DLC, so whatever that is, 20, what, 20? 2018. 18, 2018, yeah. 2019. Your fir- was your first book then, Untangle Your Anxiety? Is that the first book you did with? Yeah, so the first book was Untangle Your Anxiety. So a Manchester therapist came to me with the idea. He'd been through an anxiety disorder and was helping people uh, through therapy and he came came with the idea uh, he'd done a few books before with um, let's get the story of two people who've been through an anxiety disorder come out the other side because um, he, he believed that people would resonate uh, with it which they they did it came out at the ideal time in the in the middle of lockdown uh, and we we had great success from that book greater than panic was the second one which was my um, recovery story um, and, and that literally takes you from day one uh, to the end uh, of that four-year period where I overcome the anxiety. It shows not only the tools that I used, um, it shows the science behind the tools. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, it's an interactive book as well, because I know that people with anxiety, some people find it hard to sit down and read a book. So there's lots of QR codes in there that shows you videos and things. So it just breaks it up. It was made uh, for an anxious mind. Yeah, excellent. And and then the third, so we just finished your, your trilogy then? Yeah. So the, so the third book, Chloe, um, I went through a period of between three and six months of all the messages that the community uh, was sending me, all, all the messages, we collated them. I've got a team of people who collated all those messages and we created a fictional story of, of answering them questions uh, of what people was asking. Yeah. So it was a fictional story of someone going through an anxiety disorder uh, based off uh, true events, and, and and again, that's had a a wonderful uh, reception, and all three best selling um, in the categories uh, on Amazon. So yeah, a dream come true, really. Yeah, no, and obviously helping a lot of people, which is which is fantastic. And so the in terms of the community, then so the DLC anxiety community. So tell us how that works. And so you, because when I was looking on it, you seem to do lots of different things on the community. Yes. For those of, of our listeners who haven't heard or, or used to look at the community, can you tell us a bit about what you actually, what you do? Yeah, of course. So it's an online community. Firstly, we share psychoeducation, um, which is uh, vetted through um, psychotherapists um, and to make and to make sure obviously everything is correct, which is really important. I think the the ethics behind anything when we, when you're speaking about mental health is really important. Uh, so we have a, an online community where people they they share tips what works for them what doesn't work for them and then we get professionals from all around the world uh, i interview them on the platform um and just almost just as a sponge taking as much knowledge mm-hmm. um we put the questions of the community to these professionals and it's just creating an open space for people to speak about mental health we've had a lot of celebrities in- interviewed on the platform as well uh, because they want to share their stories. Uh, so we have some wonderful celebrities who are sharing their personal stories uh, to their large followings, which is only a good thing. And so who gives a couple of examples of, of celebrities who've, who've shared their stories? Yeah, so we've had Dr. Eamon, who's um, a celebrity doctor over in America. He's uh, done work uh, with Justin Bieber, Miley Cyrus, uh, Dr. Julie as well, who's over here in the UK. You may be familiar with her. Uh, MD Motivator, he's an influencer who's really blown up over in America. 
Um, lots of different psychotherapists, psychologists, actors, uh, actresses, um, musicians. Um, we've literally had it all, and it's beautiful to see the just the the, the different different people coming on to to want to tell their own journey because everyone's got their own journey. Yeah, of course, of course. And so, so did, is it? I'm just curious how you get these people. These people obviously are signed up to your platform. To Instagram, and then you just contact them and see. Oh, they... vice versa. Some, yeah. some of the, some of them. Yeah. I think. I think again, it's a knock-on effect. Initially, I was contacting them and saying, "Do you want to come onto the platform? I want to give you uh, this space where we can have a conversation and openly talk about anxiety and mental health." And then over the years, people were then contacting to come on. So yeah, a bit of both. And you also do your own podcast, isn't that right? Yeah, so that's it's called DLC Live. So the live interviews that we do on Instagram, they're converted to podcasts for people who want to listen to it and don't have time to watch or want to listen to it in the bath or wherever they watch the pod, uh, listen to the podcast. You've got it all, you've got it all covered, Dean. So, yeah, (laughs) so no, I was really pleased to hear obviously that everything you do is that you mentioned there, the ethics of it. Yes, is ensuring that it's sort of evidence informed, and and you're obviously working with um, therapists or whoever it is. So, so I think that's fantastic. But think about the so one of the things we always ask, we're always keen to sort of explore in this in our podcast is get different people's views on uh, what we should be doing in terms of research in the field. And so, with your vast experience, perhaps not as a researcher, but obviously as this educator, communicator, um, reaching so many people. And if we were saying, right, here's a couple of million pounds, mm-hmm. what would you think the research community, what would you say our prior, your priority would be for our priorities for research in anxiety? Just to develop more techniques for people to use, to develop more strategies, to look into reasons why, for example, SSRIs work for some people but mm-hmm. don't work for others, to to really pour the money into research that's not that, that's funded by the right people. So it's not if you're looking at medication, it's not funded by the pharmaceuticals, for example for non-biased research into the best techniques and tools that we can use to help as many people as possible. And I'm also a international ambassador for a a bullying um, charity over in America. And that's something that's really cool to my heart because psychoeducation, CBT tools, all that can be learned at an early age. And we're just not doing enough to teach children Firstly, about anxiety, and secondly, how to manage it, what techniques and tips we can do. And it's a passion of mine to get that into schools um, as early as possible. So, yeah, I would use the research to get it to the kids and get them educated. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more, I think, especially no matter what way we look at the evidence now, it's very clear that the mental health of young people has, I mean, has deteriorated. It's got worse, certainly, over recent years. And and I think the more we can do earlier, I think you're absolutely right, is the better in that. Um, and I think we are moving in the right direction, but uh, but I think there's still a long way to go. And, and especially given we know that, depending which statistic you look at, the majority of mental health problems happens before you're 20, your, your early 20s, and often, obviously, in your teens. So it is really, really important that we, we can do more there. So just thinking and relating sort of research to the online community stuff. And and you said that with the Chloe book, if I understood correctly, you've used sort of examples of what people have told you on, on the community about 
examples of anxiety or situations and so on. But similarly, then, the opposite of research are myths. So I'm just curious to see, have you any sense from reading, engaging with vast numbers of people, what are the sort of common myths that you're still hearing or seeing or reading online around anxiety or mental health more generally? Um, I would say they're always around marketing, unfortunately. So we know that with any any uh, mental health issue that there's going to be some bad actors in, in the space that, that try and prey on financially. So it would be miracle cures uh, so yeah. to cure anxiety and things like that so yeah um i'm more than happy for someone to come on and share their experience on the community about it, even if i disagree with it that's imp that's a really important thing to me i'm more than happy to have the discussion but i want to listen to the scientific evidence i, I want to see the research behind this and yeah i, I, I hate the word uh, anxiety cure uh, because anxiety is an emotion. Do you know I mean nothing needs to be cured? It's just happening in a disorderly fashion. And so, the, so then, how do, or is there a way in which you, you try to moderate those bad actors who come on? Or like, so is there? A, do you do some sort of moderation? Or I, I don't think censorship's the right word, but how do you work with that? With if people are putting up information, you think actually that's completely wrong. Yeah. So they they can't put information actually in the community. So the community posts. They are all um, made from ourselves. We, again, the vetted ah, okay. psychologists and psychotherapists. So, if somebody wants to come on, for if we just give an example, somebody wants to come on and talk about CBD and its effects on helping anxiety. Well, I know that enough scientific uh, research hasn't been done on this. Mm -hmm. and, and I would make my view clear if I'm interviewing that person. But I think it's important for me to give that person uh, their opportunity, especially if it's a personal opportunity to say that it's helped them, because I don't like dismissing someone mm -hmm. who's 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 got this tool and it works for them just um, because who am I to tell them that, that that it doesn't work for them? I can look at the scientific evidence, which we do and say, yeah, well, if that works for you, great. Well, we need to do more research into this. Uh, but yeah, I'll never dismiss someone or their, or, or their experience. Yeah, actually, just the way you said that, remind, I, I was in uh, New York last week, and I just turned on the TV and Dr. Phil was on. Mm -hmm. And But the feature that we're doing on was, what was it, the ben benefits of uh, cannabis or marijuana for mental health as it happens and but but actually I, I thought he dealt with it really well because he as as often as the case I think and Dr. Phil he tries to get the competing views on yeah. and obviously he he himself has very strong views and so one lady came on and she was talking about she was an advocate and it started off I might even be for mothers uh, a cannabis for for moms or something I think was the whole thing but anyways he let so he respected her view and then somebody came on completely opposite view and then they had a scientist on as well but it was pretty good I thought because similar to I think what you're doing is giving everybody some sense of airing of their of their views you get yeah. some because we are all obviously in time to our own views but then he was pretty clear in clarifying the clear what the evidence says that this there's dangers and if you do this yeah it's problematic and that's problematic so I think it's important as long as that it's done in a in a more measured in a in a contextualized way where you, the risks are communicated. But anyway, it just came to mind. Sorry, it was a, a, a no, slight tangent. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with yeah. that. So then, so given the success then of of the community, then mm -hmm. so what are the downsides? Because obviously, in social media. We're and uh, I'm, I'm not an advocate of social media or bad. Mm -hmm. Recognizing like anything. 
there's positive and negative components. Yeah. So in your experience, so obviously lots of positivity in terms of you're reaching that many people, yeah. helping a lot of people. What on the downsides then are the challenges? Well, we know social media is bad for mental health. However, it's addictive and the generations are not going to be not using social media. So I thought it was important to have this side of social media, a community feel. And it really, really is a community feel, a safe space on social media where people can go and and speak and learn from from professionals and and converse with people going through similar situations because everyone's on an anxiety uh, recovery journey someone might be at the start someone might be in the middle or at the end but they all have stories to tell regarding myself what the downsides are it would be that i am constantly uh, on my phone 24 7 i work obviously um, with all different time zones so i can be working For example, I'm doing an interview 9 p.m. tonight. So again, it's not your regular eight till five, but when you realize it's something that you're really passionate about, something where you've been through it and you know that by giving the hope, the messages have been incredible over the years of people saying that literally they found the community and and that's the reason why they're still alive because it gave them hope. Now, when you read that in the morning and after, say after a bad night's sleep, that really gives you the motivation to carry on and continue what you're doing. No, absolutely. I I couldn't agree more with that. So we touched on your book. So then was this doing the book? I know you said, obviously, uh, the psychotherapist approached you but how did you find the process of writing the books? Had you written, I mean, had you done any writing before? I'd never written a book before, so it was all new to me. I found it very therapeutic, to be honest. Um, I think writing is, is a great mindfulness um, technique, and I'm a big advocate of being in the moment, being present, and I think writing and reading is really helpful for that. So, for yeah, I found it therapeutic for myself. And yeah, if, if someone wants to get into a hobby of writing, I think it's only good for their mental health. Yeah. And and the, so in terms of the, the process, then did you just write, because I read a couple of books myself, one co-authored and one not. And they're very different experiences writing a co-authored book yes. versus a single authored book. So how did you find or how did you, you balance that? in the? I think with the experience of the other author, it was really helpful, useful and what was great, I don't know if you've looked at the book, but at the end of each chapter, it was almost like two people chatting in a pub. Yeah. Uh, this relaxed feel and giving giving a summary of that chapter and almost speaking as, as two males would. Again, this two males who've been through an anxiety disorder sharing their story. I think that's why it resonated so much. Um, so the process, yeah, I found it very, very easy. And yeah, I really, really enjoyed the process. I mean, that's the wrong answer in many ways, though. It's like so many people talk about the slog of writing the book, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm jesting. I think that's great that it was came easily. Um, mm-hmm. And and obviously it's, it's had uh, so much, so much reach. So what do you think? So what's the plan next then? So next step, continue to grow the community or? Yeah, so we're always growing the community each day. Um, I do a lot of talks, uh, so going to schools. Um, I went to Amazon uh, head office in London um, in December to speak to um, the workers there about mental health, my journey, my story, doing a lot of that over here and abroad. And like I say, continuing the interviewing with people. There may be another book coming. Um, I do. You, you did ask, how do I find the process with a co-author? The, I think the process individually is more stressful personally. Yeah. Maybe that's just maybe because it's, it's something that's new to me. So 
Um, I definitely think it, it, it's harder when you do it on your own. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do think there's another story there. Uh, so, yeah. So what to... might that other story be? Not that you want to give much away. No. Um, so the other story may be to do with the humps and bumps in the road of anxiety recovery and how when you've overcome an anxiety recovery, how if you look at the evidence, the scientific evidence is that you're more likely to develop anxiety again and exploring that that area. And what what can we do if if someone does relapse? Does that what does that mean? Does it mean that you're back to square one or does it mean that? You're more equipped now. You've got all the techniques and tools and you've already overcome an anxiety disorder. So looking at setbacks, because I think that's important yeah. to discuss. No, I think that's so true. And actually related to that, then maybe some pieces of advice. If if you're supporting somebody or friends or living with somebody who um, has anxiety, yeah. well, what would your tips be for what's the best sort of support we can you can provide or they can provide? Yeah, we get that question a lot in the community. How can I help a loved one? How yeah. how can I help a family member? And the first thing I say is realize that when the, that person who's going through that anxiety, they've Googled everything, they've they've gone ever, they've searched every miracle cure they can because it becomes a fixation of, of overcoming the anxiety. They don't want to feel like that. It's horrible uh, when you're dealing with anxiety um, for most of the day or are you dealing with high levels of anxiety with panic attacks. So my advice is to be supportive with them. Maybe share psychoeducation together. Look at look at the latest um, scientific evidence of, of things that work. Read into why physical sensations happen. Read into recovery stories, how people have recovered. And also just ask, uh, just say, I'm here for you. If you want to speak about it, if you want someone to go for a walk, again, a, a top tip is get moving. And it doesn't have to be going to the gym six days a week. But if you get moving, there, there really is science in um, a walk clears the mind. Uh, and those endorphins can really help when you're dealing with anxiety to, to reduce that stress. Yeah, I very. I love the clarity of, of thought. You've answered that question be many times before, I can tell. <laughs> I can tell. Yeah, I just wanted to pivot a little bit. So being a man in the mental health space, how do we try to reduce some of the stigmas that men have with mental health? It's a great question. And it's something that probably still upsets me to this day. So if I look at my demographics um, on Instagram, for example, so we've got 1.2 million people in the community. 85% of them people are women. Again, if you look at all statistics to do with mental health, we know that that doesn't mean that 85% of women are more likely to deal with mental health. We know that men um, are more likely to de develop mental health issues. So I think I think bridging that gap is really important. How we do it is by men speaking up, openly speaking about the their uh, anxiety journeys, uh, having uh, medical professionals in the field who are males and advocating that, yeah, that the, there is no stigma anymore. Uh, obviously, there was a lot of stigma when it came to men, but we're not in that. I do, I do feel like society is moving forward for, for men to, to share their experiences with mental health and it not to be seen weak. I, I definitely do see improvements in that area i just love to see more men join in the community because over the four years that that figure's pretty much stayed the same which is yeah roughly around 80 80 to 85 percent women yeah i mean I, I mean i agree that we're moving in the right direction but i still think we have a long way to go and that mm. sadly i think that there is still 
stigma associated with men talking about their mental health. And it's not even just the stigma. It's just I think that we need to re continue to think about what we, what masculinity means and how what it is to be a man in modern society. And I think that I think they're making good progress, but but yeah, still, still we still some distance. And especially when you look at then different uh, demographics within within that people from different backgrounds and different areas. I think you've you've lots of lots of challenges. But I think doing what you're doing, I think is fantastic and trying to attract that. I will join the community tomorrow. I'll fantastic. I'll have one more. Have one more. And Craig, one more, one more mail well. for the cause. Well, Craig, you as well. You'll, you're not going to join, Craig? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. I think I'm already in it. Ah, ah okay. So Craig is one of the 80, or of the 15% or whatever yeah. it is. I was just going to ask you, do you think that men are more likely to turn to substance abuse to, to mask the anxiety instead of uh, dealing with it head on? There's some evidence out there certainly suggesting that men are much more likely to use more avoiding coping strategies, perhaps is one way of describing it. But certainly, yeah, we're not, the relationship with alcohol and drugs to mask pain or around help seeking. There's definitely some evidence out there for that. But it's always much more complicated than simply that. That's part of it, certainly. But I think for me, other bits include the issue that if we look at our mental health services, the question I always ask is, to what extent have they been designed for men in mind? Mm. And it's and, and I think we need to rethink, rethink that. And there is there have been some changes so that there's been great developments looking at mental health support in football clubs, in rugby clubs, and cricket clubs, and so on. I think that's great because it's about a case of going instead of the expectation of it being the man comes to this clinical service, it's you go to where men are. And, right. and then also try and reframe it. It's not just all about clinical services and depression and anxiety and so on. It's about trying to regulate how you feel. And there's a whole different language you, mm. you can use and talking about stress and response to stress and so on. So I think we've that's where, when I talk about the long way to go, it's things like that I think we need to do so that people, men are less likely to turn to drugs or alcohol. But as I say, it's not just one or the other. Mm. But I think that's... That was a great question, Dean. Back to you. Okay, so time is is almost. We're almost at the end. And then, or, Craig, anything else, or Dean? Even given Dean started started to ask questions as well. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask your opinion on SSRIs. I know um, a lot of people don't like to speak about the topic, but obviously, a man with so much wisdom, I think it would only uh, be right for me to ask you the question: Do you think they're helpful? Do you see them uh, as a crutch? Um, and do you believe that if if someone has a good response to them, that, that it's good to, to reduce anxiety, to then help them with more effective techniques such as CBT or, or uh, exposure therapy because the anxiety levels come down? Well, I'm going to disappoint you, though, uh, Dean. So the SSRI debate, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I don't prescribe uh, medications. So I, so so I would always defer to the evidence base. And yeah. so what the evidence, you would look at what does the evidence say for the, the treatment of anxiety and or depression. And obviously one, there is certainly evidence for the effectiveness of SSRIs for some conditions, but like everything, there's no one size fits all. And so CBT works. There's obviously evidence of course for the effectiveness of, of talking therapies in different forms. So my advice would always be if you're having difficulties with anxiety, of course, and, and you find it difficult to manage it yourself, speak to your GP 
and, and your GP then can advise what the best course is because what's absolutely clear is there's no one size fits all. Oh, and, and again, you mentioned when you go back, if we go back to the very start of the podcast, when you were talking, Dean, about your own experiences of, of, of recovering and it was about non-pharmacological interventions, looking at exercise, looking at whatever other ways of, of support, sleep is so important. Yeah. So yeah, my advice is always, if you're if you are struggling with your mental health, speak to your GP and your GP and that will then can advise on the best sort of course of action for you. And I think it's good that we have all these different. Do you know what I mean? Anxiety is a very treatable condition. We have yeah. so many different, like you said, sleep, nutrition, exercise, CBT, exposure therapy, medication. There's all these different things you can do. And I think getting that message out there as well to the people who were dealing with panic attacks and and maybe ending up in a and e because the the fearful of the, of something seriously is is wrong getting that message to the people that there is hope and there's many ways of treating it we always say in the community if you're getting any anxiety symptoms and it's interfering with your day-to-day -day living the first port of call is definitely your doctor yeah absolutely yep so we're on the same page in that one yeah. okay so just if, um as we Try and sort of end this our conversation. So we we try and end with a couple of sort of less mental health focused necessarily mental health focused questions. The first one, Dean, is what advice would you give your sixteen year old self? Probably to to be present within the moment. I think at sixteen you are you're you're planning ahead. You're planning what's your career going to look like. You're planning maybe I'm going to be moving out of my house at the time. Yep. Have, have I got a girlfriend or, or how's my, my my love life, my relationships? Are you planning all these things? And I think at 16, you're not living in the moment. So that would definitely be my advice is live in the moment and enjoy being 16. Yeah, enjoy, <laughs> enjoy being 16. What well, did I enjoy being 16? Hmm, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, try to enjoy it, certainly, because I think those adolescent years are tricky. Craig, did you enjoy your 16s? Absolutely not. Absolutely no, not. <laughs> I think you've told me this before. You didn't enjoy it. Uh, the thought of going back to being 16 just it fills me with dread. But uh, <laughs> it's behind me now. That's exactly just that. Well, unless chat GPT tells us otherwise, I don't think you're going to go backwards, Craig. You're only going forward. <laughs> Fingers crossed. And then the last, the last uh, question, Dean, is again, thinking about you're obviously meeting lots of people in these online communities, mm -hmm. but thinking about, is there, are there two people or one, one or two people living or dead who you'd love to have a coffee with or dinner with? Uh, yeah. One springs to mind just with my interest in psychology. I think he's a national treasure, uh, Darren Brown, uh, the um, illusionist, uh, but it is, it's much more than the illusion. I mean, I've read all his books. He is into so much, uh, stoicism, for example, yeah, which I'm yeah, a big yeah. believer in. I would love to sit down with him. I'd love to get him on the community uh, and do an interview with him. I think he has so much knowledge in the field of psychology and with mental health conditions as well. Uh, so he would be my number one person. And that's it, a great a great suggestion. I just listened to, have you heard his, he, he, he was interviewed uh, on the Diary of a CEO podcast. Yes, yes. That was a, that was a great interview, actually. Um, watched it on, on a plane there recently. Really, really good, actually. Yeah. And who who's your second person? Have you got a second? I think I, I think I would be, do, yeah, I think just the one, to be honest, because 
that that hasn't changed since the age of probably 16 when yeah. I was introduced to him. I was just captivated and then, yeah, reading more about his vast amount of knowledge to do with psychology and mental health, um, he would be my number one. I haven't read his books, but um, well, obviously I've followed his work. And then in the interview, and I've, I've listened to a couple of interviews recently, and um, yeah, and I didn't quite realise his whole, his journey he was on in terms of his Christianity stuff and then how yeah. he found hypnosis at university and then how his journey is and then coming out and stuff and uh yeah his journey since that is a really remarkable individual so he is okay well um on behalf of craig and i um dean thanks a million for for taking part in our um being a guest on our podcast and being a brilliant guest and best of luck with continued growth of your community and and doing really fantastic work helping those who are obviously struggling with anxiety so have a great afternoon thank you very much no, thank you so much. Thank you both for inviting me on. And it's always great when we're talking about mental health, especially when it's three men in the room talking about it. I think that's uh, wonderful. That's a good spot. Indeed, that's a great way to end. Thanks, everything, and, and all the best. All right. Look after yourself. Thanks. MQ Open Mind is presented by MQ Mental Health Research, the only organization that exclusively invests into scientific research around mental health. Our vision is to create a world where mental illnesses are understood, effectively treated and one day prevented. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think about the podcast. Each review helps us reach a wider audience. Visit mqmentalhealth.org to learn more about MQ and mental health research.